The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Intensity with Efficacy in Acute Myeloid Leukemia, AML. Developing Modern Intensive Upfront Platforms for Challenging Disease Presentations. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash RMG 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. So welcome, uh, everyone. Uh, welcome to the uh, EHA uh, virtual symposium about uh, intensity with uh, efficacy in uh, acute myeloid leukemia. Uh, the topic is uh, uh, discuss about uh, intensive uh, upfront platform for challenging uh, disease uh, presentations. So uh, today uh, we are three uh, panelists. Uh, so my name is Thomas Cluzo from Nice University Hospital in France. Uh, I am with uh, Dr. Tapan Kadiar from uh, Houston uh, in uh, USA and uh, Dr. Christina Rottenberg from uh, Germany. To uh, introduce the, the topic uh, of today, uh, so uh, we, we will, uh, uh, we will discuss uh, about uh, acute myeloid leukemia and uh, as we, you know uh, recently during the last decade we uh, had a lot of drug in acute myeloid leukemia uh, approved uh, in Europe and uh, in US uh, the majority of the drug uh, were approved uh, in the in the two side uh, but some drug are only approved uh, in uh, in US, uh, so as you know, uh, the um, classification were updated recently, and today we have several classification. Uh, so uh, we could discuss maybe the major change of this uh, classification. So first, there is the ICC classification for EML. So in the ICC. Uh, we uh, uh, recognize uh, uh, TP53 mutated EML as uh, an entity uh, of uh, myeloid neoplasm. Uh, in this classification, we used uh, 10% or 20% of blast counts to diagnose EML with a specific genetic uh, signature. Uh, we eliminate uh, MDS with excess uh, blast 2 and introduce uh, another entity uh, uh, called MDS EML. Uh, there is a, uh, we defined uh, MDS related gene mutation and cytogenetic abnormalities uh, to, uh, to now uh, define uh, a disease, disease classifier for EML. Uh, and uh, history of uh, chemotherapy and radiotherapy is now uh, only a qualifier uh, instead of a, a separate entity. Uh, for the WU classification, uh, also uh, updated, uh, there is a, some difference, but uh, it's it's not a big difference between the the all uh, the the two classification. So uh, EML in the WU classification, ESML is arranged in two families: EML with defining genetic abnormalities and EML defined by differentiation. Uh, EML NOS is no longer applicable. So uh, in the uh, in the new uh, WU uh, classification, uh, there is a, the EML MRC uh, disappear, but now there is the EML MR. Uh, this EML MR uh, is the secondary EML, uh, and the definition uh, is uh, the secondary EML can arise from uh, prior uh, chronic myeloid neoplasm like MDS or MDS-MPN. Uh, it could be uh, acute myeloid leukemia with myelodysplasia-related cytogenetic abnormalities, and it could be uh, also um, 
uh, EML from prior cytogenetic chemotherapy and or radiation therapy. So uh, we, uh, we uh, today we have the update uh, from this WHO classification and we have the update of the of uh, defining cytogenetic criteria. So you have the list here on the left, uh, and uh, there we introduce in this uh, uh, new uh, WHO classification um, uh, a, mu um, a mutation-based definition based on the set of uh, eight genes: IX6L1, Bcore, EZDH2. SF3B1, SRSF2, STAC2, U2AF1, and ZRSR2. And if there is uh, one mutation, we could um, uh, classify the EML as a EML-MR. Uh, and there is also uh, an update of uh, ELN, uh, so the European Leukemia Net recommendation. Uh, and you can see uh, it's it's the same. So uh, we there is a EML defining with recurrent genetic abnormalities. So as usual, uh, we define uh, based on the ICC. Uh, a specific entity with a TP53 mutation. Uh, if there is between 10 and 19 percent um, of blast, it will be MDS-EML. And uh, if there is more than 20 percent of blast, it will be EML. Uh, we uh, identify the mutation. Uh, classifying uh, uh, the, uh, the mutation uh, with myelodysplasia. Uh, and after, we have uh, the cytogenetic uh, abnormalities uh, related to the myelodysplasia 2, and we have the other EML. Uh, based uh, on this uh, uh, new uh, classification. There is uh, an update also of the ELN uh, risk categories. And uh, you can see with the red arrow uh, the major change um, um, for this uh, um, risk uh, category. Uh, so you, the major change are that the uh, um, NPM1 mutated patient without FLIT3 ITD uh, um, as uh, considered uh, as favorable. Uh, all the other NPM1 mutated uh, patient won't be uh, considered uh, as favorable, for example, for the FLIT3 uh, ITD. Uh, we introduce uh, also the patient uh, mutated with the gene uh, related to the myelodysplasia, and you have the other uh, change uh, uh, shown here. So uh, today, uh, the recommendations uh, um, are like that using the new uh, treatment. So for the free tree mutated patient, the patient uh, uh, receive uh, intensive chemo in combination with midosterine uh, in induction consolidation and maintenance. For patients with non-mutated uh, non for free tree, the recommendation is to use an intensive chemo uh, with induction and consolidation and oral azacitidine as maintenance. Uh, for patients uh, with EML with CD43 uh, positive, we could add uh, gemtuzumab ozogamicin during induction and consolidation. And uh, for patients with EML MR or therapy related, we could use uh, CPX351. Uh, but uh, uh, in this uh, retrospective uh, data, uh, we um, we show that the uh, less intensive or more intensive chemo used to treat uh, acute myeloid leukemia uh, show the uh, same, uh, no significant difference in terms of uh, overall survival, uh, independently of the age, and independently if we adjust with uh, uh, some uh, parameters. So maybe 
it's possible to discuss to uh, to be less intensive uh, not with all, for for all patients but maybe for some patients and it's what we would like to discuss today so uh, our goal for today uh, uh, for this uh, symposium is to uh, improve uh, our understanding of factors that can characterize challenging EML subtype in which intensive therapy may be an option, expand our knowledge of the evidence supporting newer upfront intensive therapy platform in diverse EML settings, uh, equip you with the skill you need to select personalized upfront treatment for patients with challenging EML subtype, including secondary EML, and enhance your skill for pharmaging a unique safety consider consideration associated with intensive therapy platforms that include newer cytotoxic or targeted agents. To, uh, to answer to all these questions and to open the discussion, uh, it's a pleasure today to be with uh, Dr. Kadia uh, from uh, University of Texas uh, in, uh, in Houston. And uh, it's a pleasure to be with uh, Christina Rottenberg from uh, University Hospital of Essen in Germany. Uh, and Christina, uh, the floor is yours now. So thanks, Thomas, for the kind introduction. And I would like to begin my presentation with a clinical consult. So we are facing a 72-year-old man who is presenting in a generally good condition, performance status of 1, but who is diagnosed with pancytopenia due to a diagnosis of AML with marked dysplasia. And further diagnostics revealed myelodysplasia-related cytogenetic abnormalities and also myelodysplasia-related mutations. So diagnosis of AML myelodysplasia-related could be confirmed. So the question arises whether this patient is a candidate for intensive chemotherapy, for example, a CPX-based induction or a venetoclax-containing intensive regimen, or whether we should rather go with a non-intensive approach, for example, HMA venetoclax. And as I'm presenting to you real-world data and also data from the pivotal trial about CPX, um, I will describe why I think that this is an optimal candidate to receive CPX-based induction and also maybe to proceed to allogenic stem cell transplantation. So I will not go into details regarding definition of secondary AML myelodysplasia-related mutations, as you have heard about before, but I would like to draw your attention um, to the lower part of the slide where it's nicely shown that secondary AML, according to the above-mentioned definition, makes up about 25% of all AML. And historically, secondary AML was treated with intensive approaches, anthracycline and cytarabine-based uh, chemotherapy and a strong consideration for allogenic transplantation, so comparable to approaches in de novo AML. But what has repeatedly been shown, and what you can see here on the slide, is that secondary AML have an inferior survival despite these intensive approaches compared to de novo AML. So there has for a long time been a high unmet clinical need for these patients with secondary AML. And in 2014-2015, CPX has been investigated in a phase 2 trial in AML patients. And this is um, not a typically new drug, but more a new formulation of two known drugs, cytarabine and donorubicin. And these drugs have been combined in a liposomal formulation in a fixed 5 to 1 molar ratio. And this formulation provides a more synergistic leukemia cell killing in vitro and also a more selective uptake of the liposomes with this fixed formulation more by bone marrow leukemic cells than by healthy bone marrow cells. And in humans, CPX has been shown to preserve the delivery of this synergistic 5 to 1 molar ratio for more than 24 hours and a drug exposure that maintains for seven days. So the phase two clinical trial of CPX has shown promising CRCRI rates, especially in the subgroup of patients with secondary AML. 
And because of this, there has been a multi-center open-label randomized phase three clinical trial that especially included patients with therapy-related or secondary AML that were eligible for intensive chemotherapy. Patients, of course, had to be treatment naive, and they were among the age of 60 to 75 years old. Patients were randomized in a one-to-one -one manner to receive either induction chemotherapy with CPX or 7 plus 3, and those patients who do not, not achieve uh, hypoplastic bone marrow could um, receive a subsequent or second induction chemotherapy. Those patients um, who achieved CR, CRI after one or two induction chemotherapies could then um, go on with up to two consolidation cycles, or they could proceed to allogenic stem cell transplantation according to the decision of their treating physician, either instead of or after consolidation therapy. And the primary endpoint was overall survival, secondary endpoints, for example, were response rate, duration, event-free survival, and safety. And here you can see the results regarding CRCRI rate. Um, we can see that CPX was associated with a significantly higher overall response in terms of CRCRI compared to 7 plus 3. We observed CRCRI rates of 48 compared to 33%, and the authors also observed a higher amount of patients proceeding to allogenic sensor transplantation in the CPX compared to the 7 plus 3 arm, although this was not statistically significant. Furthermore, um, CPX seemed to be well tolerated, which um, was presented by lower rates of early mortality in the CPX compared to the 7 plus 3 group. And this was also true um, not only for day 30, but also for day 60 mortality. So regarding outcome analysis um, on overall survival as the primary endpoint of this trial, um, we see now here the long-term survival, five-year overall survival for both groups. And what we can see is that there is an um, overall survival benefit also in the long-term follow-up for those patients who achieved CPX or received CPX compared to 7 plus 3. And this survival benefit is especially pronounced in those patients who proceeded to allogenic transplantation. As you can see on the right side in a landmark analysis, patients who proceeded to transplant um, achieved a five-year overall survival probability of 52%. And we would like to encourage you to listen to um, five-year follow-up data that are presented um, by Dr. Cortes, who showed that um, CPX results in improved overall survival um, independent of baseline bone marrow blast count compared to 7 plus 3. So regarding um, the outcome pattern after transplant, we can here see uh, also landmark or um, post hoc analysis um, in the transplanted patients. And what is observed is that CPX not only seems to improve disease control, um, but also is very tolerable, resulting in less non-relapse mortality in those patients um, that receive allogenic transplantation compared to patients who were in or received induction with, um, C with 7 plus 3. Um, but one has to keep in mind um, that these um, non-relapse mortality rates, not only for 7 plus 3, but also for CPX, um, are rather high compared to other um, data we know from prospective clinical trials, for example, the triosulfan trial. But of course, multicenter randomized trials represent the gold standard for clinical trials, but we know that patients in these cohorts always represent a very selected patient cohort. And um, this sometimes makes interpre interpreting or translation of um, these results into real-life patient care a little bit difficult. And furthermore, there were some aspects in the pivotal trial of CPX that have not been addressed, for example, the role of younger patients or the role of measurable residual disease. So there has been a high interest in real-world evidence um, with CPX, and I would like to present three real-world analyses from Europe, from one from the Italian group, one from the French group, so your group, Thomas, and one from our group. These cohorts comprised 
um, 71 to 188 patients. Median age was comparable, although in the French and in the uh, German cohort, patients were slightly younger, but also AML subtypes were distributed um, equally among the three real-world analyzers. So regarding treatment characteristics, um, among all of these three cohorts, only a minority of patients um, achieved or received a second induction. Um, majority only received one induction chemotherapy, but there is a difference among the cohorts regarding the frequency of patients receiving a CPX-based consolidation with a very small amount of patients in our group in the German cohort. And I think this might in part be explained by the higher transplant rate we observed in the German cohort compared to the other real-world analysis and also um, in contrast to the pivotal trial. So regarding response, um, the response rates range from 47 to 65% in terms of CRCRI, and we identified different um, but also or always typically high-risk characteristics for example, complex karyotype and TP53 mutations um, in all three cohorts that were associated with a lower CR-CRI rate. As measurable residual disease was not addressed in the pivotal trial, this was of huge interest in the real-world analysis. And you can see in the German and in the French cohort that um, there were MRD data accessible of about 46% of those patients who achieved CR. Um, after CPX induction, and about almost two-thirds of patients achieved um, an MRD-negative um, CR. So coming over to the overall survival in these um, three cohorts, we observed one-year overall survival rate ranges um, a rate ranging from 53 to 69%, but one has to keep in mind the rather short follow-up um, in all these three cohorts. So negatively impact on overall survival was shown for prior HMA exposure in the German cohort comparable to the pivotal trial and also adverse ELN genetic risk um, had negative impact on overall survival in the German and the Italian cohort, while the French cohort um, identified the presence of spliceosome mutations as positive um, impact with overall survival. So I would like to take a close look on the German transplant cohort. Um, we observed a rather high rate of patients proceeding to allogenic stem cell transplantation, and the majority of patients um, proceeded to transplant without any further therapy. Only a minority um, received either consolidation, HMA, or salvage therapy as a bridging to transplant. So this resulted in a median time from induction to transplant of about 70 days. Um, in the sake of time, I will not go into details regarding transplant toxicities, transplant characteristics, but I would like to address the transplant outcome. You can see one-year overall survival, relapse-free survival, cumulative incidence of relapse and non-relapse mortality rates um, from 73, 71, 23, and 12% in the German cohort. But of course, please keep in mind the short follow-up of this cohort. What we observed was that especially those patients um, had extremely um, good overall survival um, who achieved MRD-negative CR, also comparable to or compared to those patients who achieved a CR but with MRD positivity. While the French and the Italian cohort, they observed lower CR or lower transplant rates, um, but I think they very nicely underline the importance um, or the benefit of allogenic transplantation in those patients who were treated with CPX. The French cohort on the left can nicely show the improved overall survival for those patients who proceed a transplant compared to those who do not. And this is also true as the Italian group can show um, for those patients who achieved CR and they identified um, the proceeding to allogenic transplantation as the most important um, factor for overall survival in multivariate analysis. So at the last slide, I would like to talk about hematologic recovery and toxicities. Um, in all three cohorts, there was a um, blood count recovery observed in almost all of the patients. 
um, after an average of about one month. And regarding grade three or four non-hematologic toxicities, um, mainly infectious-related complications were observed, including sepsis, including pneumonia, also including um, febrile neutropenia, while on the other hand, GI side effects or bleeding occurred rather unfrequently. But despite these infectious complications, um, there was no excess um, observed regarding the early death rate on day 30, as you can see here on the slide. So I will come to my conclusions. I think we've seen CBX has been licensed in the US and in Europe since 2017-2018 for adult patients with newly diagnosed therapy-related um, AML or AML with myelodysplasia relation without age limitation. And this approval was based on the phase three clinical trial I've talked about that included patients um, with the age of 60 to 75 years old. So patients that are um, patients like the one I presented to you at the beginning of my talk. And the pivotal trial could show a benefit in overall survival and higher CR rates compared to seven plus three induction. But I've also told you that patients in clinical trials represent a selected cohort, but also the European real-world analysis could confirm nicely the efficacy and safety of CPX and secondary AML. But still, I think there are several issues that are not addressed. For example, the role of younger patients, the role of secondary type mutations. And um, I think we need further investigation, ideally, and prospective clinical trials. And I think the AMLSG3018 trial, for example, will answer some of these interesting questions. So maybe you, Thomas or Tapan, you have any other thoughts or aspects you would like to add to the conclusions uh, or regarding our patient? So thank you, Christina, for this uh, great presentation. Uh, it was a, a, a great overview about uh, all the data about uh, CPX351. So you show uh, very well uh, the data from the clinical trial and uh, for uh, I, I think it's uh, really important to show that the real life uh, evidence uh, is the same uh, and uh, CPX351 uh, I totally agree with you is a new platform to develop uh, new uh, combination uh, treatment uh, in the future in, in this setting. Hey, I agree with Thomas. I think that uh, Christine, a fantastic presentation. I think that you really define the role of CPX, and we know that uh, CPX351 is a key drug, an important drug for patients with secondary AML. I really enjoyed seeing the real-world data, uh, really kind of emphasizing and, and, um, and confirming what we saw in the clinical trials. I think you bring up great points. I think that the, the importance of transplant and how they do post-transplant and allowing drugs like CPX to get patients to transplant really will improve their survival. I look forward to combination uh, strategies, including CPX351. I think it's a great segue. Uh, into the next uh, section where we try to discuss uh, the inclusion of, of drugs like venetoclax in the treatment of newly diagnosed AML, including those who are older and those who have secondary acute myeloid leukemia. So now uh, we, uh, we will move uh, on the next uh, presentation uh, from uh, Dr. Kadia. And thank you, Dr. Kadia, for the, for the next presentation. Thank you, Dr. Clouseau. Happy to be here. Uh, I want to thank Pierre uh, for inviting me and uh, all you... Uh, attendees of EHA. Uh, glad to talk to you. So what I'd like to touch upon a bit is the use of venetoclax-based platforms when we combine it with other regimens besides the low-intensity therapy that we've come to know with HMA or lodocytarabine. And so we know that the introduction of venetoclax in the treatment of acute myeloleukemia has revolutionized the treatment. Uh, from the days when we used to treat patients with older who were unfit for intensive chemotherapy with 5-Azacidine and Dicidabine, but we were routinely seeing rates of complete remission in the range of 18 to 20%, and overall survival from 8 to 10 months, the addition of venetoclax to HMA and later dilodocytarabine actually dramatically improved those rates of complete remission, CR and CRI, with CR rates of 37%, and importantly, really improved the overall survival of these patients uh, from around 9 to 10 months to up to 15 months. Now, a recent update at the ASH meeting uh, demonstrated that Venonasa continued to show a significant overall survival benefit from azacitidine. Uh, when combined with venetoclax. Now, what you notice, though, is over time, a couple things. Number one, 
is that the long-term follow-up at three years old, that three years of overall uh, follow-up, that the, the long-term survival was down to 23% for about 35 to 40% what we saw in the initial data, still better than HMA alone. What they also demonstrated in the subgroup analysis is among those patients with AML, MR, or MRC, as they defined it, that clearly the HMA plus venetoclax still shows a benefit over HMA in this really difficult subgroup of patients, which we frequently encounter who are older or unfit for intensive chemotherapy. So let's go back to our patient uh, that uh, Christina presented. Just a little bit of a tweak, a 72-year-old man who presented again with some weakness, fatigue, bruising, same patient. But this time, um, the patient has a slightly higher white count, 9.5, still pancytopenic in terms of low ANC, has circulating blast 45%. And if you look at the mutational profile, the karyotype is the same, but the mutational profile has ASXL1, SRSF2, TET2, a, a, a pattern we frequently see in the sort of a monocytic or CMML type picture. But now we have an NRAS mutation, potentially adding a bit of a proliferative uh, mutation to that, uh, that profile and giving a little higher blast count, higher um, uh, white count, and, and very typical of what we would see in patients. So how would we address this patient? Which brings me to one of the other abstracts that was presented at the recent ASH meeting by donor and colleagues, where they did a very nice analysis of the VLAA study, looking at all patients treated with HMA and venetoclax uh, compared to HMA alone. And they actually, instead of using ELN 2017 to, dis to dis distinguish or discriminate these folks, they, they, they based their uh, outcomes on a classification system on three mutations. Mutation in P53, mutation in FLT3ITD, or mutation in RAS, either NRAS or KRAS. And based on this, they were able to divide the, the, the patients very nicely into three categories, those who were P53 mutated, those who had no mutations, which was the top curve, and those who had either mutations in FLT3ITD or mutation in RAS. And you can see here, it really nicely delineates the, the outcomes just using these three mutations. And then when they went a step further, they looked at who benefited the most with the combination of venasa compared to azotherapy, azocytine alone. And on the left, you can see that the majority of the benefit of this population was in the higher benefit group. And these are patients who had no mutations in P53, FLT3ITD, or RAS. So neither of these three mutations, those are the patients who seem to, to, to demonstrate the, the greatest benefit with the addition of venetoclax to azocytine. Alternatively, if you look at the, less, the, the, the next two columns, which are the intermediate benefit group, those who had those, quote, signaling mutations, which are the FLT3ITD or the RAS mutations, they had maybe a marginal benefit where you can see clearly not significant compared to azacidine alone. And then on the right, you see the low benefit group. Any patient who had a P53 mutation did not seem to benefit in terms of overall survival with the addition of venetoclax to 5-azacidine. So what can we do with this patient population who has, let's say, in our patient population, an NRAS mutation along with the secondary type? So here I'd like to introduce you to another regimen, a new regimen that we recently published which is still low intensity, okay? Still a low intensity regimen in older patients with newly diagnosed AML with the combination venetoclax. So here we have low dose cytarabine, not a higher dose cytarabine, so still low intensity with venetoclax. But to that, we added drug cladribine based on data uh, of the synergy between cladribine and low dose cytarabine. You'll notice this regimen also does not include anthracycline, but a dual nucleoside analog for, uh, doublet combined with venetoclax in patients uh, with newly diagnosed AML. We recently uh, published this, this data and recently updated it. So in a uh, population uh, of uh, patients over the age of 60 with a median age of 69 years, in the first 60 patients, we demonstrated a composite remission rate of 93%. So CRCR rate of 93%. Among those, 80% had complete remission with complete count recovery. And importantly, 84% of those patients had MRD negativity demonstrated by flow cytometry and this led to a 12-month and 24-month survival of 73 and 64%, respectively, as you can see here. And this is still a regimen that can get you to transplant. Now, Christina just showed you that it was really important for those patients who had CPX-351 who went to transplant. They really benefited more when they got to transplant. And you can see here, 34% of our patients were able to get to allogenic stem cell transplant. So it's a regimen that leads to high rates of response, deep MRD, and can still get you to allogenic stem cell transplant. The next question we had, was what about responses in different subgroups? Okay. So we had mutation analysis in all these patients at baseline, and we were able to look, and you can see that CRCRI was uh, maintained across all types of subgroups. And specifically, if you look at those patients in secondary AML, their CRCRI rate was over 80%, so also very active in that particular subset of patients with newly diagnosed AML. Further, we wanted to answer this question about RAS mutations, right? I, I told you that our patient, with a little bit of a tweak, had a RAS mutation 
in addition to the other secondary mutations which we frequently see. And you can see here, by far, the best therapy for patients who had RAS mutations, and this is what this slide rep represents, is intensive chemotherapy using a hydrocytoidine-based regimen. You can see the outcomes with HMA are, 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 are listed there with the median survival anywhere from 6 to 12 months. And then on the right, on the right bottom, you see that the CLAD Lotus C plus venetoclax had possibly the best overall survival with short follow-up among these patients with RAS mutations. On the right panel, you'll see the response rates. Again, intensive chemotherapy demonstrates the highest rates of response among patients who have RAS mutations. But close thereafter is the, all the way to the right, you'll see the CLAD Lotus C venetoclax. So now, this is an opportunity for a low-intensity regimen in patients who are older than 60 years of age, potentially who have RAS mutations who may not benefit, according to the, the, the donor data, from um, uh, HMA and venetoclax. But what if we change the backbone to a cladribe, lotus C and venetoclax regimen in this particular subset? So an opportunity to use venetoclax, which has become a more and more important drug in AML, with different backbones to improve response rates uh, and, and potentially improve outcomes long-term in a broader population of patients. And you'll see this theme as, as, as the uh, evolution of AML treatment continues as we start adding venetoclax to newer backbones, including CPX351, as Christina just, just mentioned. Okay, so moving on from, so our lower intensity regimen venetoclax, can we use venetoclax now with intensive chemotherapy backbones? Many groups have published some of this data. I'm going to dive a little bit deep into uh, why we're we using venetoclax and how it does improve survival in these patients and what we're trying to achieve with the addition of venetoclax. So let's take the same patient, but let's reduce his age. What if the patient was young? So same, same kind of presentation. Remember, secondary AML also occurs in younger patients. It doesn't have to be necessarily somebody who's in their 60s and 70s. So what if you had a 52-year-old man this time with subacute onset of weakness, fatigue, bruising, shortness of breath with exertion, fever. Uh, you can see the vital signs there, white count 9.5, again, peripheral blast. His performance status is good and has been good. He's been doing fine. He's a healthy man. He works full-time, has a family, uh, but then he gets sick. Uh, so he has a great performance status. Ejection fraction, 55 to 60%. Here it says 50%. Let's say it's a little bit higher. Uh, the bone marrow biopsy here, again, just as I mentioned before, the secondary type mutations, three karyotypic abnormalities, but notably, this is not one of those who have 17P deletion. There's no P53 mutation. There's no MECOM rearrangement, but he does have that NRAS mutation. So let's go on to see what happens. So what is, what is our goal, right? What is our goal to adding venetoclax to intensive chemotherapy? Well, we want to improve efficacy, right? We want to improve rates of complete remission, A. We want to have deeper remissions, right? We want to eradicate minimal residual disease with the intensification of chemotherapy, with the addition of novel therapies to intensive chemotherapy backbones. We want to do this in, in a safe way. We want to make sure that the, the regimen, when we add these agents, is still safe in a controlled manner, and we want to continue to reduce early mortality. Remember, the, the, the biggest reason for early mortality is lack of response. Those patients who have refractory disease are the ones who have the higher rates of early mortality. But we also need to make sure that we're safe when we're adding these targeted agents. And finally, we want these responses to be deep and durable. We want to reduce the rates of relapse. We want to be able to get these people to allergenic stem cell transplant and ultimately cure these folks. On the right hand, we see a background, just some selected studies with intensive chemotherapy, starting with the Polish study, the, the cladribine added seven and three, and then three studies which use hydrocytoidine during induction. You can see uh, complete rate, remission rates ranging from 65 to, to 84%, uh, and um, a long-term overall survival in the range of two to three years of, of 45 to 60% with intensive chemotherapy alone. Can we improve on this with the addition of venetoclax? And I'll show you in this study where we looked at our historical data and then our current data with venetoclax. So just as a quick summary, these are just some of the studies that we've done with intensive chemotherapy combined with venetoclax, starting at the top with FLAG-IDA plus venetoclax, again, an intensive chemotherapy regimen using hydrocetirabine with venetoclax in a young, fit population. You can see the top curve with a one-year, two-year survival over 80%. Uh, the bottom, you see CLIA plus venetoclax, again, cladribine, hydrocerase with venetoclax, only seven days of venetoclax with a one- to two-year survival of 75 to 80%. And on the right table, you see all there summarized, uh, in addition, the, the, the data from Australia by Chang Chin Chua of 5 plus 2 plus venetoclax in older patients above the age of 60 with newly diagnosed AML. And on what you see, what jumps out at you first is a rate of composite remission of, of, of 70 to 94% in this newly diagnosed population with very high rates of MRD negativity, 80 to 96%, uh, and a high rate of transition to allergenic stem cell transplant. These are some of the goals that we wanted to achieve. Deep responses, high rates of complete remission, 
and, long, and, and more patients going to allogenic stem cell transplant. So we continued this analysis and looked deeper as to for each subgroup, whether it be all patients, uh, ELN favorable, ELN intermediate, and ELN adverse, what does the addition of venetoclax do for each of these particular populations? And you can see on the right that all patients, there was clearly a high rate of MRD negative response in patients who received venetoclax compared to chemotherapy alone. And you can see also that the biggest benefit, the largest benefit was seen in those patients who are ELN adverse, which incidentally are often the patients who are also falling into the secondary acute myeloleukemia uh, subset. So the highest benefit in terms of rates of MRD negativity were among those patients who are ELN adverse. So now you have a, a, a proposition where among those patients who are fit, healthy, young, newly diagnosed AML, you want to make sure that you achieve the highest rates of response with the deepest MRD negativity, how can you do that? Well, potentially the addition of venetoclax to these intensive chemotherapy backbones to make sure that you have the best chance of achieving a deep response to get you to allogeneic stem cell transplantation. And that's the next slide here. So here on the right, we see the cumulative incidence of achieving or, or going to allogeneic stem cell transplant. And so uh, on the right, the red curves both uh, indicate the venetoclax-based uh, therapy and the blue curves indicate those without venetoclax. So you can see uh, and in the first curve, that there is a higher rate uh, of, of allogenic stem cell transplant among those patients who received venetoclax plus intensive chemotherapy, and there's a lower rate of uh, early mortality and cumulative incidence of death uh, in that same population. So again, trying to achieve what we're trying to achieve, deep, rate, deep rates of response, high rates of MRD negativity, and more patients to allogenic stem transplant with the goal of translating this into longer-term uh, longer survival and cure. And here we see the, the, the rates of overall survival among patients who are intermediate or adverse risk, so those patients who are not favorable risk. Uh, EFS on the, on the left significantly improved with the addition of adenoclax, and on the right, a significant improvement in overall survival among those patients who have the highest of the high risk, those intermediate adverse risk AML who are young and fit for intensive chemotherapy. We see on the left, of, of course, that those patients who are MRD negative have the better outcomes and again, a landmark from, uh, from allogenic stem cell transplant, clearly allo stem cell transplant, as, as Christina alluded to earlier, uh, does demonstrate a significant improvement in overall survival and hopefully cure rate around 60 to 70% uh, with longer-term follow-up with these uh, particular types of regimens. Uh, just a couple of examples. This is the CLIA regimen to get into a little bit of detail so I can show you what type of regimens are being used. Still anthracyclines, we're adding cladribine 5 milligrams per meter squared for five days with cytarabine 1.5 grams, but importantly, Instead of the 28-day day, day dosing of venetoclax that we see with lower-intensity chemotherapy, only seven days of venetoclax here on days two through eight of each cycle. Uh, and you can see here uh, a recent update of the intensive chemotherapy, CRCR rate of 96%. And so additional studies are also coming out, uh, including uh, newer backbones. So we talked about the cladrimulotoserac backbone, some hydroserac-based backbones. Uh, but just connecting uh, with the last talk, there's now a study uh, with CPX351 combined with various therapies on the VFAS trial here, as you can see, combining CPX351 with venetoclax, uh, as well as uh, um, uh, FLT3 inhibitors, NIDH inhibitors, based on your underlying baseline mutation. So I think there are lots of exciting data to come uh, with intensive chemotherapy in combination with targeted drugs uh, such as venetoclax. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Taben, for all this uh, wonderful uh, presentation. Uh, so... Uh, so yeah, so uh, we uh, we uh, I think now we can discuss about uh, about some question. Uh, so we uh, already have uh, some question for for you, uh, Christina, and for you, Taban. Uh, so maybe the the first question will be for uh, for Christina. Uh, Christina, if a patient with a secondary acute myeloleukemia achieve a CR with venetoclax or CPX351 induction consolidation, would you consider not proceeding to allogenic uh, transplant? Uh, is achieving a CR good enough? Uh, do what is your opinion about uh, this question? So. Um if I assume that a patient with secondary AML is eligible for intensive chemotherapy, I also have a strong consideration for allotransplant with this patient. And I would not say that um, response to CPX is um, the marker for the decision to proceed to allogenic transplant or not. Because for those who do not respond, we still have sequential conditioning. But for those who do achieve a CR, I think these are the optimal candidates 
um, to proceed to allotransplant. And these are the patients who have a highest chance for long-term survival. And this has been nicely shown um, by the colleagues from Italy who have showed that those patients achieving CR and not proceeding to transplant do worse compared to those who proceeded to allogenic transplantation. Uh, maybe a second question for you uh, to uh, Christina. Uh, in your opinion, are there uh, differences in the Europe and US approach when uh, determining uh, patient fitness for uh, intensive induction therapy? So um, I can answer for Europe at least. Um, I think in Germany, we of course um, used uh, Karnofsky performance uh, index, uh, eco performance status. And in terms of allogenic transplantation, also the SORO score, but I think a very important issue um, was already addressed by you, Thomas, in your introductory slides. Um, we have to uh, not only look at the patient's age in his passport, but more or less the biological age of the patient, uh, which we can um, check, for example, also by uh, using functional testings, cardiac testing, lung testing, renal testing, and we should also have a look on the social background of our patient. Is there enough support um, for an intensive treatment with CPX or venetoclax-based um, induction and for further allergenic transplantation? I think this is also a very important point, and um, this is true both for the U.S. and for Europe. So thank you, uh, Christina, for, for your answer, and uh, maybe... Uh Now, a question for, for you, uh, Taben. Uh, how are you managing uh, delayed count recovery with uh, CPX uh, at your institution? Yeah, Thomas, great question. I think that, uh, as we know from the CPX trials, uh, that there is prolonged myelosuppression in CPX, that the median time to recovery may be beyond the 28 days that we typically expect with intensive chemotherapy. And so we expect this. And so we make sure that all of our patients are on prophylactic antibiotics, including uh, antibacterials, usually a fluoroquinolone, uh, a extended spectrum uh, antifungal, such as voriconazole or posiconazole, and then Valtrex. And many times, if the uh, myelosuppression goes beyond, let's say, 30, 35 days, and we know that they're in remission, MRD negative, uh, I usually have no issues giving them uh, some GCSF, filgrastim, uh, or so to help uh, improve their counts, especially their ANC, uh, to, to make their counts recover. And then Uh, manage that uh, on the subsequent cycle as well. Okay, so thank you. Uh, I, um, I I follow you. Uh, I have the same the same practice also in my uh, in my institution. Uh, maybe another question. Uh, we know the the hematological toxicity of the venetoclax, and uh, what is the effect of uh, adding venetoclax to intensive platform in terms of toxicity, neutropenia in particular? Yeah, great question. So right now, all of our younger fit patients, other than those that I described who are high risk with P53 or such, we use intensive chemotherapy with venetoclax, usually a high-dose regimen. So we're very familiar with adding these. And, and again, we've, we've been able to get it safe. And the fact that all patients who receive these intensive platforms, they're in the hospital for the first month for 30 days, 28 days. Uh, we give them, again, as I mentioned, uh, triple pro prophylactic antibiotics, antiviral, antibacterial, antifungal. We are uh, using regimens like FLAG, which incorporates GCSF, and CLIA, where we give Nulasta or Pegfilgrastim uh, on, on uh, day seven of the therapy to allow and to hasten count recovery. And we are seeing, so there is no doubt, profound and deep myelosuppression. There is a high, higher risk of, of bacteremia sepsis in these patients. We make sure we manage their mucoside as well. Um, but by day 28, most of the patients are recovering their counts after cycle one if they're achieving complete remission. So we're seeing good count recovery. Now, on subsequent cycles, when you see cycle two, cycle three, we are seeing some delayed myelosuppression. And so a lot of times uh, we may dose reduce during cycle two or three. Um, the interaction with azole seems to be very powerful, uh, particularly with the use of things like posiconazole. Although the, the, uh, the label requirement has been 70 milligrams of uh, venetoclax with posiconazole, We have done some studies with venetoclax levels and actually even reduced the venetoclax further uh, to, make, to maybe 50 milligrams uh, to make sure that we have less delayed myelosuppression because we are seeing an interaction. So this is, these are some of the things that we're, we're observing. Okay, so thank you. This is a great, uh, great experience. Uh, so, and maybe another question about uh, another topic. Uh, 
but uh, with the new classification, so now we we need to uh, to have a, a mutation uh, to uh, classify the patient. Uh, and today uh, we discuss about uh, the possibility of uh, several options for uh, for our uh, uh, acute myeloid leukemia patient. So, do you get uh, NGS data before starting induction therapy for EMN? Yes, absolutely. So this is one of been in our practice now for many years. Um, we make sure we try to get all the genomic data that we can, uh, particularly NGS, definitely FLT3 ITD, uh, and even cytogenetics if we can prior to starting induction therapy for AML. And then we, we, we treat based on this. So IDH1 or 2 will get either you know, IDH1-based therapy uh, with chemotherapy or venetoclax. FLT3 mutated will get FLT3 inhibitors. Those who have complex karyotype or P53 mutations or even MECOM, we may actually prioritize a low-intensity clinical trial in those patients. I think, you know, we're fortunate, at least where I work, that our uh, NGS is a bit quicker. We can get it usually within uh, eight days or so or nine days, um, some panel to get to allow us to make these decisions. I know that uh, in the community and other places, it takes a bit longer. Uh, we have implemented cytoreductive therapy or emergent cytoreductive therapy in many of our patients who come in with, with rapidly proliferative AML who needs to be treated. And so what I mean by that is a lot of times people come in with a white count of 40, 50, 60,000, and you say, well, I cannot wait to, to wait for the AGS. I need to start there. of hydria and cytarabine, anywhere from 200 per meter square to 500 per meter square, one or two doses just to control the white count, stabilize the patient, transfuse them, give them antibiotics until the genomic information comes back. So we can then use that to decide and enroll on clinical trials. So we try to get the NGS therapy. I know that it's a challenge, but these are some of the ways that we try to mitigate that. Yeah, I totally agree. It's really uh, important to to wait the all the the NGS uh, to define uh, what will be the the best treatment in current practice, but also in in clinical trial. Uh, so yeah, so in uh, in France we. Uh, we are, we are waiting also the, the results of the NGS and today the delay is less than, than seven, seven, seven to 10 days. So, so it's, uh, it's okay to, uh, to treat the patient in current practice. Uh, thank you all. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Dr. Kadia and uh, Dr. Rothenberg, uh, and, uh, have a good day. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash RMG 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals Incorporated.